0: Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman.
1: And I'm Brandon Buddha. This episode, we're talking about the Arthur Machen story, The Bowman, originally published in the newspaper, The London Evening News, on September 29th, 1914.
0: And this date is important because it means that we are less than two months into the First World War, which is the setting of this story. And we selected this story intentionally, because although this isn't going to air until May of 2019, we are recording it on Veterans Day of 2018. And We call this holiday Veterans Day here in America. Elsewhere in the world, it's called Remembrance Day, and it has its origins as a holiday celebrating the end of the First World War on November 11th, 1918, which means that today is the 100th anniversary of the end of this war. And we wanted to talk about a story that would let us reflect on the war and, of course, also on the millions of people who died because of it. So with that in mind, Brandon, let's get into the recap of this, uh, I think, really interesting and really powerful story.
1: I want to begin the recap by reading the opening paragraph of the story, just to give a sense of the style of Machen's writing, but also because I think it sets up what the story is about, the tone of the story, better than I could in a recap. The Bowman opens like this. It was during the retreat of the 80,000, and the authority of the censorship, is sufficient excuse for not being more explicit. But it was on the most awful day of that awful time, on the day when ruin and disaster came so near that their shadow fell over London far away, and, without any certain news, the hearts of men failed within them and grew faint, as if the agony of the army in the battlefield had entered into their souls.
0: Right off the bat, this, this first paragraph doesn't quite set the stage for the story. This isn't where the story is going to take place, but it sets the mood for the story. And it lets us know that this is a story set during the opening weeks of what we now call the First World War. And specifically, we're in the midst of the great retreat from Mons uh, by the British and French armies in France and Belgium in the face of a relentless onslaught by the German army.
1: That's right. We learn very quickly here that an English company is set up against 300,000 men, and they're being bombarded by artillery. To everyone in the English company, it's clear that they are in a situation beyond the potential of being merely defeated. They are facing annihilation. But the company is holding a crucial strategic position in the war, and if they break, it could turn the tide of the war against the Allies.
0: At this point in the war, it still seems like it's not going to be all that much different from other wars of the industrial age. But the the end of this retreat, that is the setting for this story, uh, this results in a stalemate, like really just only about 15 miles outside of Paris. And this is what starts the years of trench warfare that characterized the First World War in our imaginations.
1: We learn that the Englishmen are finding ways to be jovial as they wait out the reign of mortars that are coming at them. They joke about the shells, and they sing scraps of music hall songs. And there's a real contrast in the text with with this. We get almost immediately after this description of them having fun, uh, their brother's arms being torn from limb to limb, and the reality that their own artillery that they need to return fire is being decimated and dwindling by either the onslaught of the enemy artillery or their own use of return fire. And it's in moments like this when the soldiers think that things can get no worse, that they are hit with a blast that is 10 times stronger than the one they felt last. And you can just imagine this lull in combat where they're thinking that was the worst of it. And then the next volley of uh, shellfire comes in their direction. And Machin is not hesitant to point out that these English soldiers are men of stout heart, but their courage is probably not going to be enough, as only 500 remain out of the original thousand in the company. And they're in the trenches, and the German infantry is moving against them, appearing to be 10,000 in numbers.
0: It describes the German army here as a gray world of men. Of course, gray is the color of the, the German infantry uniforms. That's a, a beautiful description. I'm, I'm particularly interested in the way that Mackin does describe this experience here, and especially the way that he describes the experience of the war, both from the perspective of these British soldiers here, and also the British civilians at the the top of this story. Uh, but I think we should be clear up front that, that Mackin himself never served as a soldier, and he was never even uh, an, an embedded reporter or a nurse or something like that. So he here in this story is using his imagination, or he's basing his description on other accounts that he may have had access to. And I think he does a, a really good job of showing the physical danger that these soldiers are in. But his description of the soldiers joking around and, and singing while they are in danger feels, to me at least, a little less like it's about soldiers greeting a grim reality with dark humor, and more like it's an insistence to his civilian readers you know, in London, people reading this newspaper, that even while these soldiers are dying, they are putting a good face on it. And this is something I want to talk about more in the discussion. I think that Macken does a better job of showing us how the civilians reacted to the, the news of this defeat and the ensuing retreat in London, since he was in London and he was one of those civilians. And I think it's often hard for Americans to imagine what it would be like to hear the news that your army has been badly defeated only about 200 miles from your home. Uh, Even news of our defeats in Afghanistan now are buried in the back of newspapers. They don't even register for us anymore because we as civilians don't feel like military victories or defeats have anything to do with our own physical safety or even like with our material comfort, our ability to get food cheaply and buy clothes cheaply. But that certainly was not the case in Europe during the First World War. And and we can even see really in this story that the physical safety of people in London was very much dependent on the success of their army. So people were worried about the outcome of this war, of this battle in a very real way, not just some abstract sports fan way. And I think Mackin captures this really well at the opening.
1: Well, the Englishmen are in the trenches, as we said, and they are hyper aware of the hopelessness of their position. This is something that Mackin brings up again and again, this sense of hopelessness in the face of this battle. And as the men are really aware of this wall of infantry coming towards them as they're being pinned down by artillery fire, the men decide that the best thing to do is to just bid one another farewell. They shake each other's hands They sing a a song, they improvise a new version of Goodbye, Goodbye to Tipperary that now ends with the phrase, We shan't go there. The officers, though, are not willing to just let their men go so quietly. So they rally them and get the men focused on the battle by letting them know that there's probably not going to be any better chance than right now for a demonstration of high class fancy shooting. So the English soldiers turn to fire on the German infantry. And it is the case that the English company drops many Germans, but it won't have an effect on the reality that their position is about to be
0: overwhelmed. This scene reminded me a lot of basic training. Brendan, you did your basic training a little bit later than I did, but mine came really maybe less than a decade after the end of the Cold War. So when I was going through basic training, this the concern still was that we were going to fight not Soviets anymore, but Russians. And we were told repeatedly during our rifle training that our strategy or our tactic on the battlefield was that every time we fire, we should hit our target, which is the opposite of what the Soviet strategy was, which was just to rain bullets downfield because they had superior numbers of soldiers and they had more ammunition. And so we needed to be better shots. Whether or not any of that is true, it certainly served to reinforce the ideological propaganda of we were going to be fighting faceless, godless, commie hordes who may as well be zombies, while our and our only path to victory was through our individualism, through our our democratic individualism and our skill as individuals. And that same thing is happening here. One might suspect this is something all armies tell their soldiers all the time.
1: Yes, I joined the army after 9 11. So, like, the whole ideological landscape had changed. And during all our rifle training, it was drilled into us that urban warfare is absolutely terrible. And that the goal, of course, is to hit the target as quickly as possible because of the potential for IEDs. Uh, or suicide vests, or any number of various dangers that result from fighting in an urban terrain, that you needed to go in and make a decision as quickly as possible. If you were busting down doors or on a road or whatever you were going to do, that you were always almost on the offensive because of snipers and RPGs and various other threats to modes of transportation or getting around. And that, you know, of course, the way to victory is to just aim for center mass. (laughs) And that's, I don't know, that was really what was drilled into us uh, post 9-11 in my basic training.
0: Certainly what both of our experiences have in common is that we're being trained to not think of the object of our bullet fire, of our rifle fire as another person, even though it is another person. And that same sort of thinking is happening here in the way that Mackin is writing this story, that all of these British soldiers are individuals, they're they're fully human. The the Germans are just uniforms. They're just Uh, And they're just a mass. And this is one of the ways I think that we can see that Mackin is really thinking about his audience of Londoners reading this in their evening newspaper on the train home, that this is a bit of a a propaganda, an unofficial propaganda to to cheer them up in the, the face of this news about this retreat that is potentially jeopardizing their own safety and certainly jeopardizing their material well-being.
1: Those types of concerns really come to the forefront at the end of the story where uh, Machen makes a real comment about why the English are able to succeed here and the Germans aren't and we're going to get there in just a few minutes.
0: Right. I got us completely off track just to spot basic training stories, which we could do anytime <laughs> we want. So let's get back to the story.
1: All right. Well, the, there is one British soldier in the trenches, and he is unnamed. And he says, somewhat ironically, world without end. Amen. That is all he says. I want to give context for this phrase, though. This comes from uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. It's from chapter 3, verse 21, and it's a blessing for the Ephesians. And it's important to note that this British soldier says this ironically. Here's the full context of this phrase, world without end. This is Paul's writing to the Ephesians. Now, to him who was able to do infinitely more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever, world without end. Amen. And this is just important to keep in mind as this is a blessing that is an appeal to God's authoritative power to his true church. As this British soldier is thinking this, he also begins firing on the Germans. And for some reason, he thinks of a vegetarian restaurant that he had been to in London. This restaurant is the kind of place that made so called steaks out of lentils and nuts. The plates in this restaurant, though, all had a print of St. George on them with the motto, Ace Anglis Sanctus Georgis, which Machen translates in the story as, May St. George be a present help to the English. As the Germans are advancing, This particular soldier recites the motto in his head that he read on the plate, and he continues to fire here until a man on his right cheerfully smacks him on the head in order to make him stop. The king's ammunition costs money after all. And at this point, the soldier is wasting the ammo because all he's doing is hitting dead German soldiers.
0: We're just about to get to the action of the story, just about to get to the real speculative part of the story, but we should pause here and talk about St. George. St. George is one of many late Roman soldier saints. That's to say he was a Christian Roman soldier who was required to stop being a Christian by the Roman government, but Who refused and was executed for it? There are about a dozen of these saints from around the year 300. And today, St. George is the patron saint of England, which is what he's doing here in this story, or what he's about to do in this story anyway. But this role is really a a late medieval and really maybe even an early modern appropriation. For most of the Middle Ages, St. Edmund was the patron saint of England. And it's not really until the Hundred Years' War of the 14th and the 15th centuries that St. George takes on this role. And maybe not even really until the 16th century, when writers like Edmund Spencer and William Shakespeare do a lot to promote this notion. Uh, And we're going to get some more of that shortly.
1: Well, this soldier who has muttered the incantation, when he uttered it, he feels a shock pass through his body. And he hears a great shout, crying out, array, array, array. And his heart grew hot and cold at the same time, and it was as if thousands of people were shouting for St. George and for the deliverance that only he could provide. The people cried out for heaven's night to aid them. As the soldier is experiencing these voices, he sees a long line of shapes with a quote shining about them. They were men who drew the bow and once released, shot their arrows at the German army. The Germans now are going down in the thousands rather than the singles or the tens or the hundreds. And this is something that is clearly impossible for the English to do with their weapons loadout on their own power.
0: This initial scene of the spectral bowmen slaughtering these German soldiers, I think, has some real interesting features. One, Macken has his English soldier stumble on what to call these German soldiers, and he has him settle on gentlemen in such a way that we know that he either says the word gentlemen ironically— or that Macken is letting his readers know that uh, what this soldier really called them is a name that cannot be repeated. And I think that's my preferential reading as someone who uh, accidentally slips into speaking like a soldier in his classroom from time to time. And uh, and Macken also tells us here, I mean, it's so casually really, that it barely registers, that the, the German officers are shooting their own soldiers for refusing to keep advancing. And there's a, a real element here of Vilifying and dehumanizing the enemy that I think is part of this propaganda nature of this story.
1: Right, and that continues on right to the end of the story, which we are just about at. The voices that are urging St. George to help the English soldiers continue, and eventually the Germans are defeated here. The Germans, who were ruled by scientific principles, believed that the English must have used shells containing an unknown poisonous gas, as the German bodies here on the battlefield were found with no wounds. And it's left for us to understand that only one English soldier knew the truth of this victory. And this is the soldier who knew what nuts tasted like when they called themselves steak. And this soldier also knew that St. George had brought his Agincourt bowmen to help the English.
0: And this is the end of the story. What Mackin is doing here is is referencing the Battle of Agincourt in 1415. This is a. a- extremely important battle during the Hundred Years' War, when the kings of England were regularly trying to become also the kings of France. And this battle is pretty famous for being an underdog victory in which the outnumbered soldiers of Henry V defeated the French army. And it's particularly famous because longbowmen defeated thousands of French knights. And of course, these longbowmen are just regular, they're just yeomen. They're, they're regular farmers. They're peasants basically and so there's some class consciousness going on here in the memory of this battle as well as some very early nationalism. Uh, and of course, this is really still famous to us today because of Shakespeare's play Henry V. Uh, and if, if you'd like to hear me perform the most famous lines of this speech, uh, you can do that over on Lower Decks, our Star Trek podcast, where uh, Valerie and I dissected a speech by a character that was in fact a, a mimic uh, or a reframing of that exact speech. But what's happening here is that the spirits of these British bowmen from this long ago battle that happened more or less right where this present battle is happening have come come to help out their countrymen in this war of, of, of national self-defense. And the play Henry V really crops up every time the UK is at war. During the Second World War, there was this amazing production of Henry V by Sir Lawrence Olivier that was explicitly propaganda, by which I mean it was paid for by the propaganda department of the Royal Army that was about, hey, we're about to have to go across the English Channel and fight some battles in northern France uh, against an enemy, and we should remember that this is a part of actually our very national identity is that we do that. This Macken story here, The Bowman, takes on also kind of a life of its own in the, the sort of national mythology of of the United Kingdom. And in part, this is because Mackin published this story in the newspaper. And many people who read it didn't realize that it was in the fiction section of the newspaper and read this as a news bulletin. And people began talking to each other about it. And basically, a long game of telephone happened. And by the end of the war, everyone in the UK believes that something like this story actually happened at the very outset of the war. And the story that most people believe, though, is not that it was the bowmen of King Henry V from the Battle of Agincourt, but that it was St. George and an army of, of literal angels from heaven, that it was God intervening here to protect the British expeditionary force from complete destruction, which would have led to the immediate loss of the war and potentially the invasion of the UK. And this is something that even even before the end of the war shows up in other types of propaganda. And you can find hundreds of sermons delivered, especially in early 1915, about this phenomenon, uh, about stories of soldiers seeing angels during the midst of this battle and, and this sort of two-week-long retreat. And this has become a real mainstay of popular belief about the war. Like We could You know, go do a man on the street sort of thing in London and ask. People, if they've heard this story, uh, most people probably won't have heard this story. But I think that we would find a good number of people who have and believe that it is true, or at least believe that it is based on the reports of soldiers rather than based on some weird fiction story that a famous weird fiction writer had published in a newspaper. My own experience with this is that I actually had heard this story about the angels of Lemon long before I ever read the actual story by Arthur Mackin, and I, I was really curious, Brandon, if that was your experience as well, if you had heard this story before, or if you read the Macken story before you knew about the Angels of the Mons?
1: Neither was the case for me. So this was my first encounter with this story. You know, I've not really been a student of 20th century history that much other than history of ideas and thought, uh, which many would say is not as necessarily impactful as the history of war <laughs> in the 20th century. Uh, but really, until the past couple years, I've encountered the World Wars in the 20th century as, is as an infa- f- the failure of the Enlightenment project, the booming of cap- global capitalism, the way the United States conduct itself in the world as foreign policy, and, and the types of ideas that continually produced in the 20th century these sort of genocidal tyrants so I had not really encountered this story. It wasn't a part of my growing up, learning about World War I or World War II. I didn't really have much family that fought in the military. Uh, my grandfather was in Air Force Reservist during the Korean War, um, but did not fight overseas. So this was really my first encounter with this story, and I printed this off of the Gutenberg project, which I highly recommend people use as a resource here. These stories are free. And read Mocken's introduction to the story and was absolutely surprised that this had really become the first meme, really, of World War I. And it really, really blew me away. The way generals were even reciting this story as remembering it happening, it instantly became part of the cultural memory of England for the war.
0: The First World War has been a huge presence in my life. I mean, I remember reading this story about the Angels of Le Mans in the very first book that I really actually remember checking out from the library in the third grade. All of my childhood favorite writers, J.R.R. Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, uh, several others, were all soldiers who fought in the First World War. And it was clear to me from the start that their experiences had infused the way that they were writing their fantasy novels and their their children's books. And that's really where I want to go with our really kind of only discussion question for the night, discussion point for the night, is to situate the Bowman in the wider scope of the literature of the First World War. I think it's probably fair to say that the main theme of the literature that we regard as being World War One or First World War literature is disillusionment. Uh, Wilfred Owen comes to mind as being perhaps the most emblematic figure here. Uh, He was a a, a Welsh poet, a British poet, who was critical of British culture, uh, and, and really critical of the aspects of British culture that taught young children, young British children, boys in particular, that there was glory in fighting and dying for the empire. And his most famous poem is about how, in fact, there is absolutely no glory in watching a man choke to death on his own body, during a gas attack.
1: Yeah, Wilfred Owen is is a really interesting case, and and he's written some fantastic war poetry, and almost all of it was written while he was fighting in war. Wilfred Owen died one week before Armistice Day in a battle, and it's absolutely tragic for somebody this critical of the war who still had that drive to fight. There was this culture still around military honor being noble, being something worthy of achieving, even though you're watching people die really brutal deaths and pointless deaths at machine gun fire and mustard gas and different things like that. A lot of Wilfred Owen's poems are fantastic. And Wilfred Owen even had a chance to not return to the trenches. He was involved in a friendly fire incident and his supervising officer said, don't go back to the front line. And he insisted on going back. And he was killed, as I said, one week before Armistice Day. And his mother actually got the news of his death on Armistice Day. He, he's one of my favorite. He's become one of my favorite literary figures out of World War One. And I do also want to say that a lot of the people that I read as a teenager when I was really getting into reading were people like C S Lewis was a major influence as a young man for me. I knew that he fought in World War 1 and other writers I also found the same thing that you found that something about being a soldier shaped them as a writer. And I back then thought, well, you have to go to war to be a writer.
0: <laughs> Fortunately, that turns out not to actually be true. Some of the other I think major first world war writers you know, you know, include people, you know, Lewis and Tolkien, we've talked about, uh, but also Ernest Hemingway and and Robert Graves, who is I think less well known now than he was, uh, really in, in our parents' generation. He wrote the novel I Claudius, which was I don't know a smash hit on the BBC and also PBS back in the eighties. I remember watching my parents watch it uh, in the in our in the basement of my childhood home back in the eighties. Uh, Robert Graves is a kind of a personal hero of mine. He was a you know great. Uh, classicist. And when the war was over, and he went back to the UK, he wrote uh, a memoir called Goodbye to All That, that is actually about him finding it impossible to really go home again. And in fact, Graves left after really just about a year back in the UK said, I can't live here anymore. We find this same sentiment in The Lord of the Rings when Frodo says, Yes, Sam, we saved the Shire, but not for me. I can't be at home again. Hemingway also couldn't go home again. He had to just be an alcoholic in Paris after this. And this to me is a, this 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 inability to go home again, or the sense that I cannot go home again, home is not for me anymore, is another of these major themes of First World War literature.
1: Right. This is where we get the phrase, the lost generation, that these people, uh, many of them who were underage, signed up under illicit means. I mean, The Legend of the Fall is kind of oddly a great movie about these kinds of sentiments around, around World War I. Not the best movie about World War I, but the sentiments <laughs> I think are, are pretty much there. Where the home you thought you lived in before you left is not the home you return to. The experience of mechanized warfare is impossible to reconcile with the public sentiment of victory. And many people
0: lived as expatriates
1: in other countries after the war.
0: We should add that the the term shell-shock Originates here in the First World War. This is a slang; it's euphemism for what we today would call post-traumatic stress disorder, which is to say that this reliving of the experience of being shelled or of undergoing a very serious, very heavy machine gun fire. This real auditory experience that is combined then with the experience of those around you being slaughtered, being rendered limb from limb. In a way that Macken describes here in this story, uh, this is something that really originates in the First World War. And I think we've done a really good job now of sort of setting the stage of what we think of as being the literature of the First World War. But everything that we've talked about is either from during the war later than this story is written or it's from after the war. So what I really want to, us to to talk about here or try to do is to to situate the Bowman within this context of first world war literature or really maybe even compare the Bowman to these canonical first world war texts. Uh, how does this story from early in the war compare to the stories written later in the war and afterward to to you, Brandon. What's your sense of this? Does this have these hallmarks of a First World War story?
1: The elements that really come, hold up well to what we would call as like the fiction around World War I are really about the descriptions of people caught in this new form of mechanized warfare. We don't really get a sense of the machine gun fire here, but the endless artillery fire, the hordes of bodies coming at you while you're in a trench that's all here and you know really putting this in in the historical context I'm reminded of uh the scene in All Quiet in the Western Front where the narrator goes home to his hometown and all of the old men are congratulating him on being a soldier and how noble and honorable it is and all he can think about is the wars they fought are nothing like the war that he is fighting particularly as it relates to the destruction wrought by technological advancement that is able to tear somebody limb from limb. That is a very different experience than a cannonball hitting a battlefield, for instance. In World War I, cavalry was still something that officers rode Horses into battle in the early part of the war, there was a mass confusion around what type of war this really was until it settled on doing the most destruction as quickly as possible. I think the seeds of that are in this story, and we recognize those as the big elements of the story, looking back. But I think if we're, I think if I were reading this and, and I were hopeful, those would be the parts that I would skim over. And the parts that would really stand out to me would be about a miraculous victory and how this war is not going to last long. And we stopped the Germans. And now we can all
0: put this to bed and put this behind us. I also was really struck by the kind of two poles that there are in this story. I I kind of went into it expecting there to not be very much of these hallmarks of the First World War. But Meckon has a real sense of what an artillery shell is going to do to a person. Uh, he doesn't know about mustard gas yet, but he does understand about shrapnel, and he has this really uh, poignant and and heartbreaking, but also captivating line about watching your brother in arms be dismembered. Your brother in arms lose his arms, more or less. Is the wordplay that he uses there? I didn't expect there to be that much emphasis on that, and we get this too. I think even in the, the actual violence that the spectral bowmen are doing, that in fact, what they are doing is very much like what a machine gun does. And this is sort of where we, the the line about the, the drilling holes into to dead soldiers. But on the other hand, there was also this merry old England sense here as well. This real uh, nationalistic, uh, real patriotic sense that w- the war is going badly, but we could still be home by Christmas. We can still win this thing. So there is still this this propaganda element here as well. The two things don't seem to really go together in the same story, to me. Though Mackin is a good enough writer to actually to, to pull that off here in this story. But I was struck by kind of the the two the two ways or the two poles uh, that this story is being tugged on.
1: Right, Mackin does do something with mustard gas, though. I mean, there is this sense that where you connected the uh, drilling holes into the dead German soldiers as being machine gun fire, the Germans, who are rational people, don't see wounds on the bodies and think it's a new kind of poisonous gas. He's two months into the war, maybe predicting chemical warfare
0: that will take place You know, in a very short period of time. Yeah, that's absolutely right. That's totally fair. I guess where I was really contrasting Mackin with other writers who deal with the gas, Wilfred Owen in particular, is that he doesn't describe what that does to your body, which is what Owen does in Dolce et Decorum Est." That's a
1: fantastic poem, and everybody should read it if they haven't already. But Mackin is, as you said, and I and I really can't emphasize this enough, dehumanizing the Germans. He just says things like "dead Germans." He doesn't even give them soldier or person. He says something to the effect in the story, like, they've abandoned our God, and this is why they deserve what they get. And to me, that's uh, that's a message that I can no longer stomach, really, as a, a person who has been a soldier, uh, been in the military, but has kind of tried in in, in later years to consider pacifism as a real alternative to this sort of attitude towards the other.
0: And I think that's exactly the most important hallmark of literature from late in the war, and especially from after the war, is in fact the shedding of this this nationalism. It's the shedding of this idea that uh, I as a soldier was a victim of the other guy's armies, or that uh, my comrades in arms were killed by the other soldiers. And people are left actually with a sense that, no, in fact, it's all of the soldiers who are the victim of the war with a capital W. And for many, even the sense that we were all victims together of what our states, what our countries did to us by sending us to fight this utterly senseless war in the first place. And and that attitude and that understanding is really the the cultural and social impact of the first world war out of which grow things like the women's suffrage movement and uh, looking to alternative forms of government whether it's uh, fascism or socialism or just outright communism and and that's really one of the, the the big cultural and social impact of the war and I think we should we should keep that in mind when we are reading the Bowman. but I think most importantly what we should bear in mind is that almost a hundred million people died in this war uh fifteen million of them actual soldiers like the people that Mackin is writing about. That's why we wanted to read this story tonight. Use our podcast here as a a way to remember those people who died in this just complete tragedy a hundred years ago.
1: It's always worthwhile to take time out of your life to really think about the conditions under which your life is possible and the certain types of absurdities and the century of war that has really brought about the conditions of flourishing for many of us that we live under today. And the number of us who never had the opportunity to have a family or to return home or anything like that. The literature that we love that inspired the writers that we love or that the writers that we love were writing out of is all part of this century of war. And I can't encourage our listeners enough to encounter much of the literature of the 20th century really as war literature or post-war literature, because much of it is and can be read with a lens to that. And if that's not your cup of tea every once in a while, it is worth it to go back and look at the experiences of some of these people and be grateful for what they could tell us about their experiences in these wars. So on that note, that will do it for this episode I'm Brandon Buddha.
0: And I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find us and our other creative projects at Claytemplemedia.com.
1: Head over to the Clay Temple Forum and let us know what you thought of the Bowman and its history as a story, an early World War One story
0: as well. Next time we'll be reading The Statement of Randolph Carter by HP Lovecraft, and until then, we greet you and say farewell.